Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events, including Carla Ann Robbins in conversation with Tom Edsel on May the 14th and Catherine Epstein talking to Michael Mandelbaum on the 17th. Coming up on the show today, Vernon Bogdanor, author of the new book, Britain and Europe in a Troubled World. Uh, Vernon, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So congratulations on the book. Uh, The context, of course, is Brexit. Um, But as you say in the very first line, Britain's relationship with the continent of Europe has long been an uneasy one. Absolutely. Perhaps I first ought to explain that the book comprises lectures which I gave at Yale University in 2019. They were the Stimson Lectures. And perhaps it's worth explaining why this issue is of importance to Americans, because Americans have been very heavily involved in Europe in the 20th century. Obviously, the two world wars. And I suppose in 1914, many Americans might have thought that the murder of an Austrian archduke in Sarajevo had little to do with them. In 1939, a frontier dispute about Danzig had little to do with them. But of course, they'd be wrong. And it's clear, I think, that America can't help but be involved in Europe. So what happens in Europe is of great importance to them. And I think that's been particularly so uh, with the 20th century, with decline in Britain's power, if you like, from being a global power, and that role has passed to America. A number of scholars have written about that. And um, the former American president, Theodore Roosevelt, made an interesting comment about it at the beginning of the 20th century in 1911, when there was a crisis in Morocco, which pitted France and Germany against each other, and almost led to a war. And Roosevelt said to the German ambassador, you know, if France had been overcome, we wouldn't have stood by, we'd have acted. And the German ambassador said, isn't that contrary to the Monroe Doctrine? And Roosevelt said, no, no, not at all, because uh, Britain was the balancing factor in Europe. Britain kept the balance of power. But if Britain can no longer do so, America will have to keep the balance of power. Indeed, he said, America is now the balancing power in the world as a whole, which I think was a very prescient prediction. But as you say, my book is about Brexit, and there are two fundamental themes to it. The first is that Britain's a very different sort of country from the countries on the continent. And again, that to Americans might be surprising. After all, we are just 25 miles away from the continent and now connected to the continent by the Channel Tunnel. So Americans may find that difficult to comprehend. Uh, to them, Europe is just one continent, but Britain has always been, for reasons I try and describe, a very different sort of country to the others on the continent. And my second theme is that neither from the point of view of Britain, nor from the point of view of the European Union, was Brexit an aberration. It points to very important factors in the British attitude towards the continent, and one or two things that are wrong with the European Union, and I say that even though I was on the losing side. I was a supporter of Remain. I think the European Union is on the whole a good thing. But nevertheless, there are one or two things wrong with it. So I hope we can discuss both of those two themes 
And it, it is one of the interesting elements of the book. And in some ways, the uh, relationship with America ties into this as well that you were talking about before. This question of whether a country, whether a continent, whether a relationship like that can escape from its past and, and whether it should even seek to escape from its past. Absolutely. And of course, this was the key issue about Britain's membership of the European Union. And those British politicians who were most eager to see Britain embedded into Europe, people like, for example, Edward Heath, the prime minister who in the 1970s led us into the European community as the European then Union then was, Edward Heath, he appreciated it would need a radical change in our approach. It wasn't as it were, consistent with our previous history. It wasn't an evolutionary move forward. It was a kind of quantum jump. And the reasons for that, I think, are fairly clear. But our history, unlike the history of those on the continent, has been on the whole peaceful and evolutionary, partly, perhaps largely, because of our island situation. We haven't had a change of regime since 1660, well before the United States was founded. And interestingly enough, we call that constitutional change a restoration, the restoration of the monarchy. We had 11 years as a republic, but that didn't really suit us, so we restored the monarchy. And that's a great contrast with the continent. Uh, we were the only major state in Europe in the Second World War not to have had either a Nazi or fascist regime or to have been occupied. So we didn't have that national psychology that required us to overcome the past. To put the point very crudely, if you live in Germany or Austria or France, you might perhaps be a bit worried about what your grandparents might have done in the 1940s. Now, we, of course, in Britain, through perhaps geographical good fortune, don't have those worries. Now, one of the motivations for the European community was to overcome the past, to start again, a new beginning. We didn't have that feeling. For us, the key moment, the key symbol was 1940, when we stood alone against Nazi Germany. And that seemed to show we didn't need the continent. We weren't wholly tied to the continent in, which, in a way in which the other countries were. So our position has always been fairly ambivalent. Although, as you point out in the book, uh, Churchill himself in 1940 was very explicit that Britain was fighting for Europe, uh, fighting by ourselves alone, but not for ourselves alone, you quote him saying. Yes, Churchill does symbolise this ambivalence very clearly. You're absolutely right. He said we're fighting not for ourselves alone, um, but for Europe. Our aim is not just to preserve ourselves from Nazi occupation, but to liberate Europe, which of course he succeeded in doing with American and, and Soviet help. But he was ambivalent about whether that made Britain a part of Europe. He realized we couldn't stand aside, but should we really get very close and join this new integrated structure that was being set up? It's worth pointing out how the European Union differs from other international organizations like, for example, NATO or the United Nations or the World Trade Organization. It's uh, a body founded on integration. And Europe has a system of law which is superior to that of the member states. Just as in America, 
the federal law is superior to that of the states and has a direct effect on every individual. So it is with European law. And this made it very difficult for us with our long history of national sovereignty and our long history of parliamentary sovereignty. It made it difficult for us to accept that. And then, of course, it's worth mentioning that um, we, at that time, saw ourselves as the head of a great empire. Perhaps we didn't realize how quickly the empire would dissolve, how rapidly decolonization would occur. And Churchill and many others in the British elite thought they had special ties with America, the so-called special relationship, an overused phrase, perhaps. It's worth mentioning that Churchill's mother was American. It was sometimes said about Churchill that he was half American and all British. And Harold Macmillan, who made the first unsuccessful application to get Britain into Europe, he also had an American mother. So these ties were very close amongst the British elite. But perhaps we overestimated the influence we could have uh, as a small island country with the United States. I mean, it's interesting that you're drawing out those different traditions, uh, those different legal frameworks, and that that's something that really comes across strongly in the book, that Britain does have a different history, it does have different political traditions, different legal framework. Uh, you even talk about a different national psychology. And I was very struck by that phrase of Anthony Eden, uh, another prime minister in the 1950s, who says that membership of the European Federation would violate the unalterable marrow of, of the British nation. In some ways, that never changes, does it? That's absolutely right. And he said a federation on the continent of Europe is something which we know in our bones we could never join. In other words, it wasn't a matter of argument. It was a matter of instinct. And I suspect he was right in that, that we were never comfortable with it. We saw our membership of the European Union as a matter of economic advantage, of being open to a wider market, a huge internal market, just as America's a huge internal market, and you can send goods as easily from um, uh, New York State to California, just as easily as you can, for example, one part of New York State to another. Similarly, with the EU internal market, in theory at least, you can send goods from London, or could send goods from London to Budapest or Warsaw just as easily as from London to Scotland. But that, that, of course, has now ended with Brexit. We wanted the market. We didn't want the state building and integration that went with it. It's worth pointing out perhaps something else uh, as a result of the empire, that uh, survey evidence shows the countries Britain feels most closest to are the countries of the so-called old Commonwealth. Canada, Australia and New Zealand, and then America, and only after that Europe. And perhaps it's also worth pointing out, there are more British people living in Australia than in all the 27 EU member states put together. So that's where our, as it were, sentimental attitude uh, really consists. And um, and and, yes. and and that economic side as well is interesting too. But do you think that that that's one of the reasons why Britain never really invested emotionally uh, in the European Union? It's often said that uh, Edward Heath, by presenting Europe as this common market, there was never an emotional commitment to the idea of Europe, which so many Europeans on the continents really seem to feel very strongly. Absolutely. And uh, when we entered, uh, politicians tended to muffle the likely 
constitutional and political effects. And Edward Heath's government said, there is no question of the sacrifice of essential national sovereignty. Now that begs the question of what essential actually is. But it also misses another point, that the powers the European Union enjoys are not a closed category. They can expand at any time. And there's no real um, analogy in the European Union to a state's rights states rights clause in the American Constitution, which does limit the power of the federal government. In theory, at least, it seems the European Union can take over what powers it likes. And in the last 30 or 40 years, it has taken over powers, which many people think are absolutely fundamental to the nation state. Uh, for example, uh, powers over the economy, monetary union, the role of a currency, uh, trying to take over powers in the air of defence. It's taken over powers in justice and home affairs. And more recently, as we've seen over vaccinations, it's taking over powers over health delivery. And perhaps most sensitive of all, with the Syrian migration crisis, Angela Merkel in particular thought that um, the EU should have powers over migration and be able to distribute refugees, migrants, across the various countries of the EU. Now, some countries in Central Europe, particularly Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic, said we're not having any of that. We're not having any Muslim immigrants into our countries. And although they were required by the European Court of Justice to do so, they have so far ignored that requirement. And this, uh, I think, does uh, point out the difficulties certainly that people in Britain would face, and immigration was a crucial issue in the Brexit referendum campaign, the crucial issue when the EU entrenches on very sensitive powers of nation states. I mean, it's interesting. You make it clear in the book that there was a, a British vision for Europe, and in many ways, one that was very successful, perhaps uh, articulated in it in its clearest form in Margaret Thatcher's favourite uh, famous speech in, in Brussels. Uh, but the idea of the single market, for example, the expansion of the uh, EU to take in the uh, countries of the former Warsaw Pact, these were very much things that were driven by Britain as its contribution to the EU vision? Yes, it's very ironic that the two major changes for which Britain was in large part responsible, the creation of the internal market and the enlargement of the EU, are the very issues which led to Brexit, because the creation of the internal market led to the creation of state institutions to regulate that market, and enlargement meant that free movement became an important and serious issue because while not too many people from France or Germany or Italy had wanted to come to Britain, many people from Poland and Romania and Hungary and so on wanted to come to Britain because wages were lower in those countries, uh, social conditions generally not perhaps as good as they were in Britain. And Britain, I think almost alone in Europe, had a non-contributory benefits system. So that also was a great advantage and of course a free national health service. So these things led to uh, Brexit. As you say, uh, they were British initiatives. Now, I have moved on, perhaps some would say regressed in my thoughts since writing that book, and I've now come to the view that the kind of confederal Europe 
of nation states that Margaret Thatcher put forward and also that French President de Gaulle put forward is really the right way forward for Europe because I've come to the view that the current structure and in particular the Commission, as has been shown by the recent debacle over vaccination, the Commission is not democratically legitimate and therefore the institutions of integration have not become democratically legitimate and the only democratically legitimate bodies are the governments of the member states which should work together. So I think the old uh, Delors Jean Monnet idea of an integrated supranational Europe will not work with 28 countries. It might have done with the original six and it might perhaps if a small group decide to go ahead on their own which is what President Macron France, of France would like to see but I think it can't with the, uh, um, an EU of 28. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the the things which seems very strong within the remaining European Union. It sense this sense of disconnect between this very technocratic class and the Commission and what's going on in Brussels and ordinary people. That, that many people throughout the European Union, not just in uh, Britain, which has now left, see it as anti-democratic. They see corruption. They see a lack of uh, competence, they see a lack of transparency, uh, all of these things. So I, I wonder whether you feel that that Brexit uh, in many ways is just in the vanguard or whether you think that, no, this is an end point and that actually Europe can reform itself. Yes, these are very important points. Um, Brexit... Um, in one way was not in the vanguard in the sense that no other country seems likely to follow Britain out of the European Union, but in another way perhaps it is. And you might say paradoxically that Britain was in the forefront of countries in the European Union because thanks to Britain's long evolutionary history, she was more aware of what the sacrifice of sovereignty would actually mean. It was very easy for other countries to say, particularly as they were emerging from dictatorships, or the experience of war. Yes, of course, we are happy to sacrifice sovereignty, but when it comes to it, they are less happy. For example, Germany is very unhappy about sharing debts. Poland and Hungary very unhappy about accepting the decisions of the European Court, and so on. So I think that is an important factor. And you're absolutely right to point to the disconnect between the people and what you might call the political class democratic deficit in the European Union. It's very dangerous and is leading to the rise of populist parties in a number of continental countries. And I do uh, hope very much the EU can reform itself. I should say this is an old theme about which I first wrote many years ago in 1992 at the time of the Maastricht Treaty when I contrasted it. It's in a book edited by Jack Hayward for the Oxford University Press called Elitism, Populism and European Democracy. And I wrote contrasting the large majorities for ratification of Maastricht in the various legislatures of the member states with the scepticism of the general public. And I said, well, that's not addressed. There'll be problems. Then, of course, in 2005, the French and the Dutch rejected the European constitution in referendums. And this has grown. The EU elites haven't done much about it. They are disconnected. And the EU appears to many people like a rather alienated superstructure. And I, I, I do think that um, it, it's very important to put it right. 
this problem, I think, was there from the very beginning because Jean Monnet, with all his virtues, was a technocrat. And he didn't fully realize, in my opinion, the importance of democratic legitimacy. He thought in terms of policy and not politics. He was head of the Commissaire du Plan in the Fourth Republic in France, and that was a technocratic organization. It wasn't clear how it was responsible to the parliament or the people. And his high authority, which became the Commission of the European Union, was a similar body. It's not properly accountable. And I think the problems that Europe has faced with vaccination are partly due to the fact that the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, did not have to undergo the gamut of popular scrutiny. Uh, I think that makes a tremendous difference. Um, of course, presidential candidates in America, candidates for the premiership in Britain, do have to undergo that very powerful uh, democratic scrutiny. And I think that makes a better government. And I think that every British prime minister who's written their memoirs has talked about, uh, in Tony Blair's phrase, the discombobulating element of prime minister's question time, where you every week you are forced to defend your decisions. And again, this kind of sense of a, a directness to the to the questioning. I wonder as well, Vernon, what, what do you think the impact of the pandemic is going to be uh, on all of this? As you alluded to there, in some ways, Brexit actually hasn't looked too bad in, in the context of, of, of uh, since leaving in 2020. It's been better on vaccines. The, the economic recovery looks as if it's going to be faster. Uh, even in the last couple of weeks, uh, football, what our American listeners would call soccer, uh, has, has been saved by Brexit because the European Super League uh, was effectively poleaxed by the British government being able to say that it would intervene. So uh, how do you think that recent events since Britain has le- since Britain left in January 2020, uh, how do you think that has gone? You're absolutely right about this. As I said earlier, I was a Remainer, but it's fair to say that the pessimistic prognostications of some of the Remainers, at least, have not borne fruit. And as you say, the COVID crisis made many people in Britain say, how lucky we are not to be in the European Union. Uh, In theory, I suppose it ought to be an advantage to be in a multinational body when a crisis of this sort occurs, but in in practice it hasn't been. And the um, predictions of economic disaster, if we left the European Union, have not occurred either. And I suspect the economy will perhaps do a bit worse than it otherwise would have been. The rate of growth will be lower. But that may not be noticed, and to the extent it is noticed, it will probably be blamed on COVID. So, um, on the whole, I think one has to say things have turned out better than many people, including myself, feared. And certainly, I think there's no prospect of Britain seeking to rejoin the EU in the near future. And it's interesting the Labour opposition has made that point. He said a Labour government would not seek to rejoin the European Union. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, in many ways the British did have an opportunity to change its mind. The general election of 2019 really did have various options, including just completely um, annulling the result of the Brexit referendum, though that was on the uh, that was on the uh, the ballot paper. And yet it was a pretty convincing affirmation of the decision, giving a majority to the the talisman of Brexit, Boris Johnson. 
Yes, the 2019 general election was, as you say, in part a second referendum on Brexit. The Conservatives said, let's get Brexit done. We've got a withdrawal agreement, let's now ratify it. The Labour Party said, no, this isn't good enough. We want a different sort of relationship with Europe, possibly another referendum. The Liberal Democrats said we would, a Liberal Democrat government, which admittedly was unlikely, would apply to rejoin Europe or stay in Europe rather, without a further referendum. And that was also the view of the Scottish nationalists and the Welsh nationalists. Uh, but as you say, Boris Johnson won a convincing majority. And the, the, the feeling broadly amongst British people was, we're sick of this issue. It's gone on for too long. Let's just get it out of the way. And uh, that has, frankly, I don't think it's been wholly achieved by the trade and cooperation agreement but it's been partly achieved. I think there's still a lot of very loose ends that have to be negotiated. But still, there's now no question that we are out of the European Union, we are out of the single market, we're out of the customs union, and with no intention, as I said, of rejoining in the near future. And what about the United States? That You referred to it at the beginning of the uh, interview. What do you think is the future relationship for Britain, for the EU, with the United States? How, how is that going to be reconfigured uh, in, the, in this new post-Brexit world? Well, there was an interview recently um, at Chatham House, which is our Royal Institute of International Affairs, between Henry Kissinger and a former British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. And Kissinger took the view that although he thought Brexit was a mistake, Britain could still act as a bridge between the European Union and America. I'm a bit more sceptical of that, but we shall see. But obviously, the most important thing in the immediate future is for Britain to get a good trade agreement with America. And here I fear that we are a bit too optimistic about America and I fear also that there's some misunderstanding, as there's always been in Britain, about American institutions and how they work, just as perhaps there's misunderstanding in America about how British institutions work. The British popular view, it's fair to say, and perhaps even some people in government hold this view, is it all depends on whether we have a sympathetic president. Now, people in Britain thought that uh, Donald Trump was sympathetic to Britain, whether they were right or wrong, I don't know. Boris, uh, sorry, um, Joe Biden, they thought was slightly less sympathetic, but that view is now altering. But surely the important point is that these things don't depend wholly on the president. They depend primarily upon Congress. And Congress, as we know, is a very decentralized body with a number of veto points. And at these veto points, American manufacturers can get in and say, well, wait a minute, if you have this particular deal, shall we say, on, on chicken, uh, we won't put up with that. That's not good enough for us. And we'll instruct our representatives and Congress men and women and senators not to support it unless you make these concessions. So it's not as easy to get a trade agreement as some people in Britain think. Now, negotiating with Britain, I think, is frankly a bit easier because once you've got the agreement of the government, you can be fairly sure that the House of Commons will support it, certainly with the comfortable majority that we now have for the Conservatives. But in America, it doesn't necessarily follow because the President wants something, that Congress will go along with it. Indeed, usually Congress doesn't. And particularly now, Congress is nearly deadlocked between the parties. So I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about 
Britain and about America. It's an old theme. It, it came up at the time of Suez very much, I think, and also at the time of renewal of atomic weapons in the 1960s. There's a very good classical book about this by Richard Neustadt called Alliance Politics, which um, sums it up much better than I could. And I think it is well worth reading on both sides of the Atlantic. I, I'm continually worried by the fact that Britain and America understand each other so little. I wonder um, as well whether whether you think that Britain is a little too reticent uh, about uh, making making good use of the advantages that it does have. After all, it's a leading uh, funder and player in NATO. It still has a permanent seat at the UN, has an independent nuclear uh, weapon, uh, kind of is instrumental uh, in Five Eyes and so on. So the, these old traditional verities of intelligence and nuclear weapons, military relations, uh, and so on. These these are things that the United States uh, are going to need if if they're facing a rising China, for example. As we saw very recently when uh, New Zealand questioned uh, the, the the integrity of Five Eyes. I think this is right, and certainly we are, I believe, the closest intelligence partner of the United States, and no doubt our advice on foreign policy and defence matters. Is, is valued in, in Washington. I think that relationship is close, but I think that doesn't necessarily translate into good trade and economic relationships. And I think we made this mistake often of assuming that it does. Um, to take one uh, historical example, after the war, we assumed that because of our close um, defense and foreign policy relationship with America, we'd get favorable terms for a loan that we sought, and, and we didn't because Although the president may have been sympathetic, a lot of congressmen weren't uh, congressmen from, shall we say, the Midwest. So why, why should we give special terms to the British when they've set up a welfare state, which we don't have? Why should we finance British socialism, was the way they then put it. And um, I think it's in the trade era that we have the greatest difficulties, the economic areas. But I agree with you in foreign and defence policy, we're, we punch much above our weight. I mean, it's interesting that uh, you point out that David Cameron, who I think you knew as a student at, at Brasenose College, Oxford, that he he himself was an instinctive European. Um, why, why do you think that he risked it in 2016 and, and held the referendum? Um, I think David Cameron, um, he was pro-Europe. He wasn't a huge enthusiast, it's fair to say, but the pressures on him were such that he couldn't really do anything about it. Um, in 2011, uh, 81 Conservative MPs voted for a further referendum, breaking a three-line whip in the House of Commons. He also faced the rising UKIP party led by Nigel Farage, the United Kingdom Independence Party, which called for a referendum and, and also British exit from the European Union. And that threatened Conservative seats. And in my opinion, without um, advocating the referendum, David Cameron would not have won the 2015 general election, which he won by a small majority, a majority of, overall majority of 12. And he would then have to govern again with the Liberal Democrats, who were admittedly very pro-European. But he had made that promise about the referendum, and I think he'd have to have one all the same. So um, I think the pressures were such that... Um, 
he had no alternative. And he did say in his Bloomberg speech in which he announced it in, in, 19, in, sorry, in 2013 that hostility was building up. And if you didn't try and legitimise British membership for the European Union, it would build up to such, a, such an extent that Britain would be forced to leave anyway. And I think that was probably the right judgment. He, he was very unlucky in the referendum that um, you had uh, the question of immigration, which was a key issue in Britain, muddled up with the question of asylum and refugees because of the Syrian civil war. And um, uh, the, some of the Brexiteers said, well, if you join, if you remain in Europe, you'll have all these refugees coming to Britain. And they also said quite falsely, there's a danger of Turkey joining the European Union. Britain can't veto it. And that means 80 million Turks come into Britain. Well, I think you'd have to look hard in Britain to find any Turks there. But, and this was untrue. It's fair to say there were exaggerations and distortions on both sides in the referendum campaign. And referendums, like general elections, they're not academic seminars. People aren't on oath. And a lot of foolish things, uh, dishonest things, were, were said on, on both sides, it's fair to say. Um, David Cameron had never been a Euro enthusiast quite. And I think that was part of his problem because he'd taken the Conservative Party away from the European People's Party, the centre-right grouping in the European Parliament. He'd fought Britain's corner hard. He said there were a lot of things wrong with the European Union. Perhaps he was right on that, but it was then difficult to turn round and say, nevertheless, we ought to stay in it. So um, he did face peculiar difficulties. And you end the book amidst all the hysteria that that happened, particularly in Britain, but also in Europe uh, too, after the Brexit referendum. And you remind us that, that Brexit has not shaken the foundations of the British political system, you say. Britain remains a stable democracy, one of the most stable indeed in the world, and its constitutional political structures uh, retain their solidity. Uh, in other words, uh, a sense that that we need to see this in some kind of broader historical and constitutional perspective. Yes, that's absolutely right. The British um, way of politics is very different from the German. It's much more adversarial, but it conceals basic agreement on fundamentals. And it's worth pointing out that one thing Brexit has done, slightly to my surprise, I must confess, is to liberate Britain's liberal political culture. I spoke earlier about immigration. Now, Britain is now the more sympathetic to immigration than any country in the European Union. That people wanted immigration managed and controlled, but not ended. Uh, immigrants in Britain have a much greater chance of getting employment than in any member state of the European Union. And we are the only major state in Europe without a radical right party like the Front National in France or the AFD in Germany or the Sweden Democrats in Sweden or the Liga in Italy without such a party in our parliament. So uh, I think that um, um, stability of British institutions uh, is, is very profound. And I would say the strength of Britain's liberal political culture, despite things that are often read about and said, Britain remains a highly liberal country. You have to, it's, it's fair to say you have to exclude in all generalizations about Britain, Northern Ireland, which is currently celebrating its centenary. Things are very different there, where the conflict is still there based on religion and nationality, because most Protestants belong to the majority unionist population, and most Catholics belong to the minority Catholic 
population and politics there isn't about left and right it's it's about a fundamental problem of allegiance that is very different from the rest of the country. And on that broader uh, constitutional point, you uh, finished the book with a, with a great quote from uh, Adam Smith, uh, who, uh, after being told by a, a young aristocrat after Britain has uh, lost the American colonies that this will be the ruin of the nation, uh, Smith says, young man, there is a great deal of ruin in a nation. And you, uh, you finish by saying that those are wise words and well worth remembering. Yes, I think that's true of Britain and, of course, America that's had its own troubles with the uh, attack on the capital uh, and so on. But I also um, try and make clear in the book and, and would like to emphasise how important it is for the European Union to survive despite its difficulties uh, as a check against extreme nationalism, which, as, as I began um, by saying, caused two world wars. It began in Europe, but America was involved in both of them. Indeed, without American aid, um, uh, Europe would be a very different continent from what it is today. And I end by quoting uh, François Mitterrand uh, as President of France in his final speech to the European Parliament in 1995, I think it was, shortly before he retired, when he knew he was dying. And he spoke about his experience uh, growing up after the First World War, when almost every family in France had lost a, a member, and uh, then the Second World War being part of the time in a prison camp in Germany, the history of Europe being wars, and he said it could be wars again, it was important to preserve the peace, and he ended by saying nationalism means war, le nationalisme c'est la guerre, and this has been echoed recently by President Macron of France, who spoke of what he called the leprosy of nationalism. And I think the European Union is a great cure for that leprosy. So I hope it survives. So the book is Britain and Europe in a Troubled World. It's written by my guest, Vernon Bogdanor, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Vernon, congratulations and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. I've much enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>